Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Calling Tau City, turn on your radio. I know we had some words last time, but that was so long ago. I got your message. It was a little harsh, you know. It's still a little hard for me to hear. Please take it slow. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring tales to terrify and far-fetched fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. I'm tuning in to your transmissions. I'm waiting to be found. And I'm building rockets. This is the Starship Sova, everybody. Welcome, hello, and welcome to show 481. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. We have two stories today coming for show 481. First up is some short fiction, Some Things I Should Have Mentioned by Laura Perlman. Then we have the main fiction, which is Butterfly Dreams by Donald Jacob Uglevit. Now, I hope Donald, I probably butchered that name, but there you go, in for a penny. So we're going to get straight in with the first story, which is the short fiction, Some Things I Should Have Mentioned by Laura Perlman. Laura Perlman's stories have appeared in Shimmer, Flash Fiction Online, Daily Science Fiction, Unidentified Funny Objects 4. Number 6 has just passed the Kickstarter and it's a go. And Mothership Zeta. She sporadically she has sporadically updated blog called Unlikely Explanations and the Tumblr devoted to things her cats have dropped in the water bowl. She should have probably get out more. You can find her at and there's a little Twitter handler there as well. This story is narrated by Jen Albert. Jen R. Albert is an ethnologist, writer, editor, narrator, wife, dog mum, game player, reader of all things, and a haver of too many hobbies from Toronto. She is a regular narrator at the Scape Artist Podcast and is co-editor of Podcastle.org. So the Starship Sova is very proud to present some things I should have mentioned. By Laura Perlman. Dear Kevin, I'm sorry I waited so long to tell you this, but I really hate your vacation cabin. Everything about it creeps me out. The sound of crickets at night makes my skin crawl. They sound like impending doom, like a critical piece of equipment being worn down by friction, or a thousand tiny voices, hoarse from screaming, reduced to a raspy warning chant in some ancient language. The crickets aren't the only problem. The smell of so much wood in one place makes my eyes burn. And is it really necessary to throw pine cones into the fireplace? Are the burnt wood fumes not overpowering enough? I used to lie awake at night fantasizing about finding whoever came up with that idea grinding them up, feeding them to the crickets, and then gathering up the crickets, stuffing them into the fireplace, burning the cabin down, and watching from a safe distance. Upwind, of course. Do crickets even eat meat? You probably know. You grew up with all this. 
That's why you're comfortable with it. I'm not. To me, it's alien and disturbing. I wish I'd told you this the first time you took me there, right after we started dating. But your friends were having such a good time. I wanted to be the fun girlfriend who liked what everyone else liked. It must seem strange that I'm bringing this up now, when neither of us will ever go back there. I mention it because saying I loved your cabin set off the chain of events that led us to where we are today. It wasn't the first lie I told you, of course, but the others were just my cover story. I wish I'd been honest with you then. I wish I'd had the courage to tell you who and what I am. I wish I'd shown you images of the different shapes I'd taken before committing myself to human form. I wish I'd been able to make you feel the joy and freedom that comes with flowing from one shape to another and the profound sense of loss I felt when I gave that up. I wish I'd been able to share what life was like on the ship. It was a total immersive experience. We spoke human languages, ate human food, and molded ourselves into closer and closer approximations of human shapes, with human form instructors as our guides. We read your literature, tapped into your networks, and watched your videos. We received our cover stories and fashioned our human personalities. One of the hardest things to master was food preferences. They're just so arbitrary. Remember the time your sister came over for dinner and we made chocolate fondue for dessert? We started with apple slices, orange sections, and strawberries. Then Janice wanted to try dipping something salty, so I brought out the saltiest fruit we had, a jar of olives. Oops. I seemed to mess up a lot during meals with your family. I'm sorry I laughed at your uncle at that first Thanksgiving dinner. I know you wanted me to ignore him, but information gathering is my job. I just couldn't keep a straight face. <laughs> if he only knew, my people are far more illegal and far more alien than anyone he was ranting about. And believe me, we're not here to steal anyone's jobs. I won't go so far as to say I should have told you our plan, not our complete plan, but the research phase is scheduled to continue for another 73 years. We're nothing if not methodical, and I could have just said we were here to learn more about you. I should have told you at least that much when I found out I was pregnant. I honestly hadn't believed that was possible. And then I remembered something I'd read during the journey to this planet. The ship was stocked with most of your classic literature, including a story about a husband and wife who exchanged gifts. He sold his watch to buy her a hair accessory. She sold her hair to buy him a watch accessory. It was supposed to convey irony, I think. For a long time after I read it, I thought human hair stopped growing at adulthood. Otherwise, the story lacks symmetry. The husband is permanently deprived of his watch, but the wife's hair will grow back with no effort on her part. I thought perhaps you and I were like the characters in that story. Maybe this wasn't an interspecies pregnancy after all. 
I'd spent the last four and a half years deceiving my apparently human spouse into thinking I was human. Maybe you'd been doing the same. The more I thought about it, the more certain I became that this was true. I began to make preparations for the traditional Strelarian pregnancy announcement ritual, pared down for just the two of us. I planned a feast of guinea pigs and salamanders, the closest things I could find to our traditional delicacies. I thought we'd break the rules just this once and gorge ourselves on live meat. At the same time, just as a formality really, I collected hair and cell samples while you slept and took them in for analysis. I repeated the tests three times, and the results were devastating. You were totally and undeniably human. Dr. Tran says we were able to produce that tiny zygote because my human cell mimicry was so accurate, and it was able to survive because human stem cells are almost as malleable as ours. I should have told you all this gradually throughout the course of the pregnancy. I had so many opportunities to do so. When you asked me why I wouldn't even consider your sister's obstetrician, I could have told you everything and explained that Dr. Tran was the only Strelarian physician in the area. But what if you didn't believe me? I convinced myself at the time that it would be better to wait for the ultrasound. We'd watch it together and you'd see the baby stretch and contract and reshape itself. As the day of the ultrasound approached, I became more and more preoccupied with my own fears. What if there was a human fetus inside me, with one of those enormous human baby heads? I've seen how you people give birth. I began having nightmares about one of those things bursting out of me. I was awash in a sea of fear and regret. That's why I forgot to tell you I'd rescheduled the appointment. I can't begin to tell you how relieved I was to see the images of our perfect little angel flowing into an ovioid, an almost cube, and an adorably lopsided dodecahedron before returning to her resting spherical form. I'm sorry things were so tense when my relatives arrived right before my due date. They've never approved of this marriage. My parents hated the idea of a human raising their grandchild. Three of them wanted to kill you outright. The others just wanted me to leave you. The only thing they agreed about was how irresponsible I'd been, getting pregnant, getting married, even the way I'd made decisions back on the ship. To be fair, they were right about that last bit. I don't know, you pick one for me, is probably the worst possible answer you can give when asked to pick a gender. Eventually, they reached a compromise. They concocted an elaborate plan for me to fake my own death, leave the country, and raise our baby alone. They arranged everything. New passport, plane ticket, apartment, even a new wardrobe. And wrote a new cover story for me. I refused to go along with it. I was sure our love was strong enough to withstand this challenge. Half of all marriages end in divorce, and I was determined that ours wouldn't be one of them. I should have planned a better distraction for you when I confronted my family. Leaving you alone with my parent adjunct, sorry, I mean Uncle Roger, was a mistake. 
He's not as bad as your uncle, but he does love to talk, and he tends to forget some of your more nonsensical cultural taboos. I should have warned him not to tell his war stories, especially not the part about feasting on his fallen enemies. Seriously, what's wrong with that? It's not like they'd be any less dead if we left their bodies out to rot. And as I tried to explain, we maintain proper hygiene, eating only healthy people we've slain in battle, not anyone who's died from disease. Arguing with you about that was a mistake. That's valuable time I could have spent telling you about my background and what to expect with the baby. And then I went into labor, and it was too late to say much of anything at all. Still, I was sure you'd come around once our baby was born. A powerful love for our offspring is something our two species have in common. I didn't expect you to freak out at the sight of a few baby teeth. Yes, they appear within minutes of birth instead of however long it takes for your kind. And yes, they're longer and pointier and more numerous than you're accustomed to, but that's a perfectly natural phase of infant development. For the next couple weeks, she'll be flopping around all teeth and digestive tract, eating everything in sight to support her neonatal growth spurt. She's so adorable and clever. It looks like she's developing venom sacs. Only about 15% of Strelirian babies have that instinct. Her grandparents are very impressed. Goodbye, Kevin. I can see now that you'll never be the kind of parent our child deserves. I'm putting this into a letter instead of speaking to you in person because I don't want to subject our baby, or let's face it, myself, to the escalating anger and, frankly, xenophobia you've displayed ever since my parents showed up. I'm sorry it's come to this. I'm sure you understand why we can't let you go. I know the basement can get a little chilly, but you shouldn't be there much longer. I hope you'll find some comfort in the knowledge that, although you won't be around to help raise our child, you won't have failed her completely. You won't nurture her, but you will nourish her. Tonight, when her teeth have completely hardened, you'll have the honor of being her first solid meal. All, well, some, of my love, Lissa. There you go, don't forget, copyright is Laura's. Laura, thank you so much. That was just a wonderful little story there. Thank you indeed. And Jen, thank you. Oh! <gasps> Yes, come back, please. We'll have more narrations. Thank you so much. So before we get into the main fiction, just a few little heads up about, you know, this future celebration of 500. It's going, it's going harder than what I thought. It's getting more complicated to put something into space with a video recording and everything. Now, now I'm finding, not just is it freezing cold, which, you know, I mean, I kind of stumbled upon with the weather balloon, but it's also the sun's rays are 60% brighter and you've got to compensate, oops, banging the mic there, got to compensate that with the the glare on the screen and that, oh, man, starting to give us a headache now. So any ideas or anything like that, that would be fantastic. <laughs> you know, I'm depth. Yeah, just a little balloon up there. Happy birthday, Starship Sofa. So we're getting to the main fiction and like I say, it is Butterfly Dreams by Donald Jacob Uglevit. And Donald, again, 
Very sorry about that, because you know I've butchered it. But this originally appeared in science fiction stories. Donald lives on neither coast of the United States, but mostly in a haunted memory place of his own design. His short fiction has appeared in numerous print and online venues, including Timeless Tales and Christopher Magazine. He strives to write what he calls haiku fiction, stories that are small in scale but big in impact. If you enjoyed Butterfly Dreams, let him know on his webpage and his little Twitter handle there as well. This story is narrated by Adrian Collins. Adrian Collins is a Sydney-based founder of Grimdark Magazine. Big hats off to Adrian, lad. He loves reading about anti-heroes and seeing a story from a perspective of the villain across genres, especially SFF. When not reading, he's generally getting stuck into beer with mates, travelling or working as a bad writer. And there's a little Twitter handle as well there to go and see Adrian. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present Butterfly Dreams by Donald Jacob Yulevit. Once Chow dreamt he was a butterfly, happily flitting and fluttering around. When he awoke, he didn't know if he was Chow who had dreamt he was a butterfly or a butterfly dreaming he was Chow. Chang Zhu. It was finished. Doug Kane pulled the door of his brother's home behind him making sure the lock caught. He slipped behind the wheel of his black Mustang and backed it down the driveway. He waited until he could work his way out of Russell's development and then hit the gas. His Mustang was a conspicuous car, but he needed speed more than stealth. He hoped to be two states away by the time the police found his brother Russell's body. Doug pulled onto the highway and clicked on the radio. Perhaps that would distract him from his swelling thoughts. We'd like to take a moment to thank our day sponsor, Sochitech. Sochitech, for all your... Doug mentally tuned out the commercial and the station identification. He had finally caught a break. The highway should have been bumper to bumper this early in the morning. But while the flow of traffic around him was steady, there were enough gaps that Doug could weave through them without ever having to drop below 90. Something about moving around the cars evoked a strong feeling of deja vu. Doug shook his head. If only Russell hadn't started hitting Kathy, none of this would have happened. Doug gripped the steering wheel, trying hard not to think about the way his brother had looked up at him with those unseeing eyes. Tried not to think about how Russell's marriage to the kindest and prettiest woman in the world had started to unravel before the couple had returned from the honeymoon. The attacks had been verbal at first, Doug only hearing about them after the fact. But the night Kathy had shown up on his front porch, in tears, with a black eye, he turned up the volume of the radio. Don't think about it. Concentrate on getting out of town. His mind would go round in circles if he let it. Was Del Shannon's runaway? Doug found himself hating that perfect radio voice. And now there's Johann Sebastian Bach's Toccata and Fugu in D minor. Doug blinked as the melancholy strains of organ came through the Mustang speakers. Eclectic mix. I didn't know there were any kind of independent stations left in town. I thought they'd all been bought out by the big conglomerates, and it was all that pre-programmed shit. He slammed on the brakes only just avoiding the golden retriever that darted in front of the Mustang. What the hell's that dog doing on the highway? A quick glance around told Doug that it wasn't the dog that was out of place. He wasn't on the highway anymore. Somehow he'd wound back in the suburbs. Not at all sure how he'd gotten there. That set finished with Sleep Sliding Away by Paul Simon. Next up, The Monkeys with Pleasant Valley Sunday. Doug ignored the background buzz of the radio trying to figure out exactly where he was. God, I'm in Russell's development. How the hell did I get back here? Guilt? 
or perhaps his subconscious mind was trying to help him out. Maybe he had left something at the scene. Should he check? He idled at a red light, deciding which way to turn. He saw someone out of the corner of his eye, her face. She looked so much like Kathy, only without the black eye and bruises she had sported last time Doug had seen her. But there was something else. The only thing Doug could compare it to was the feeling he sometimes got in department stores when he caught sight of a person out of the corner of his eye, even felt a presence behind him, but when he turned, it was only a mannequin. This was that same feeling, only in reverse. Like the woman had been less real until Doug had looked at her, some unseen force popping Kathy's face into place at the last minute. He shook his head, even though the light had turned green. Was the fact he was seeing Kathy and strangers another omen? I don't have time to worry about this. Stick to the plan. Get the heck out of Dodge. He turned left, away from his brother's house, leaving Russell's body behind him. He drove past a park, moving slower than he would have liked, trying to get back to the highway. A number of children played there, odd for a school day morning. Doug's stomach churned as he watched the children. He could almost see their faces snapping into place as he looked at them, just as before it was like they were somehow less real until he looked at them directly. Nerves. It had to be nerves. Doug hadn't been as cold-blooded about killing his brother as he thought he'd been. The deed was catching up with him. Proud Mary by Ike and Tina Turner. Talk about your explosive relationships. And with that, we move on to Judas Priest with You've Got Another Thing Coming. Doug forced himself to drive past the park. As he rounded the block, he saw a kid leaning up against a fence watching him. Bobby? Bobby Reynolds? Couldn't be. Bobby had taken his own life when he and Doug were both in the 8th grade. He'd always felt guilty about not doing something to prevent Bobby's death. His guilt had to be taking over. He was seeing things. Whoever the child really was, he seemed to recognise Doug, waving to him as he drove past. Doug forced himself to look away, gripping the wheel tightly. Another blast from the past with theme from MASH. And a special note to those of you in the suburbs... Police have just discovered the body of a prominent local physician, Russell R. Kane. The doctor was found murdered in his own home. The suspect, or suspects, are still believed to be in the area. So lock your doors, kiddies, leave your lights on, and stay with us. Next up, Soft Cell with Tainted Love. Doug fought down his panic. How had they discovered Russell's body so fast? His brother was supposed to be out of town for the next week. Everyone at the hospital and the club knew this, and Kathy and the kids were away to mothers. It had been the perfect time to try and stop Russell from ever hurting Kathy again, and now his carefully made plan was all falling to hell. He nosed the Mustang toward the highway again, trying to move as fast as he could without drawing unwanted attention to his car. He could hardly breathe. In the distance, he heard the sound of sirens. Flight instinct set in. Doug floored it, turning the wheel. Downtown? How had he wound up Downtown? The sirens grew louder and Doug could see squad cars. This was going to be his last chance. And I am out of here. I leave you with Mozart's Desiree. As Doug rounded a corner, a police car teed into him and another rear-ended him. His windshield cracked, red paint blossoming like fireworks in the night sky. As he died, the last few hours flashed before his eyes. Kathy, his careful planning, his confrontation with his brother, the murder. It was finished. Doug Kane pulled the door of his brother's home behind him, making sure that the lock caught tight. He slipped behind the wheel of his red firebird and backed it down the driveway. 
He waited until he could work his way out of Russell's development, then hit the gas. His Mustang was a conspicuous car, but he needed speed more than stealth. He hoped to be two states away by the time the police found his brother Russell's body. Doug pulled onto the highway and clicked on the radio. We'd like to take a moment to thank our day sponsor, Sochitech. Sochitech, for all your... The highway should have been bumper to bumper this early in the morning, but there were enough gaps that Doug could weave through them without ever having to drop below 90. Something about moving around the cars evoked a strong feeling of deja vu. Doug shook his head. If only Russell hadn't started hitting Kathy, none of this would have happened. Russell Kane smiled, looking down from the view screen to his brother in the VR machine. Doug's head was immobilised by a web of wires and traps, with goggles over his eyes thicker than a blind man's sunglasses. A breathing mask and feeding tube blotted out the rest of his brother's face. It wasn't going to be a pretty life for Doug, trapped in that loop, reliving forever a death that had never happened. At least it's better than what you had planned for me, Dougie. A marvellously full-service place, this. What did their ads say? Sochitech, for all your virtual reality needs. They've gone above and beyond here. Still, no need to let them know that. They might charge him more, citing God only knew what clause in the 50-page contract. He tried his best to hide his smile of triumph, succeeding poorly. Do you want to see the loop again? Russell turned to see the moon-faced technician in his white lab coat. The man had one of those nondescript faces that you swore you had seen before but couldn't remember where. Hmm, just one more time. You approve the script yourself, Dr. Kane. I can assure you that the scene loops with only slight changes in scenery and casting, drawing from the subject's own memories. We find that the variation keeps the subject from ever figuring out that he's in a VR environment. Your brother will experience that car crash ad infinitum, especially given what you're paying us. I didn't pay for that commercial for your blasted company. Policy, I'm afraid. I was able to place the advertisement as close to the beginning of the loop as possible, where the subject will be the most disoriented. A sudden thought occurred to Russell, triggering from a news report he had read once upon a time. And if he figures out the commercial repeats, he could wake himself from the cycle. In the long history of this firm, we've never had a subject awake due to auto-suggestion. Consider, too, that he would remember our name from the ad. If your brother were to wake, I doubt that things would go well for us. An overzealous DA might even interpret our actions on your behalf as criminal. And leaving the law to one side, we've seen your brother's violent tendencies. In fact, our lab studied them in depth to create that environment. Trust me, Dr. Kane. Your brother will remain in VR until you choose to release him or he dies of natural causes. Russell had to admit that the technician had answered all of his questions. His gloating smile returned and he turned back to his brother. He watched the view screen for a moment, enjoying the growing desperation playing out there. Then he looked down at Doug's real body, trapped in the VR machine, his face obscured by the goggles, breathing mask and feeding tube. What was that slogan? Sochitech. For all your virtual reality needs. It was not going to be a pretty life for Doug at all, but it was better than he deserved. Do you want to see the loop again? Russell turned toward the technician, a hint of a smile on his lips. Just one more time. And you're certain he feels no pain? None at all, Mr. Kane. The technician seemed to sense Doug's hesitation and went on. Your brother is a sick man, Mr. Kane. It's clear from your own research that not only was he abusing his wife, 
He was going to have you institutionalised in this facility. Illegally, I might add. That's why we contacted you. Yes, but to do to him what he was going to do to me, it still doesn't seem right. The technician paused before speaking. Remember, it is an illness we're speaking of here, Mr Kane, and a serious one at that. We still don't understand the sort of compulsions that drive someone to try to act in such antisocial ways. But psychiatric science is making new advances all the time. Perhaps one day soon your brother can be cured of his rage and jealousy. But until then, it's safer for everyone for him to be here, including for Dr. Kane. Doug looked down at Russell. Behind the grotesque goggles and mask, his brother was smiling. He couldn't remember the last time Russell had smiled. Doug wondered what he saw. Okay, where are the papers? Right this way, Mr. Kane. And thank you for choosing Sochitech for all of your virtual reality needs. Doug froze, a chill running down his spine. From somewhere, he heard the sound of a woman laughing. There you go, don't forget, copyright is Donald. Donald, what can I say, sir? Tell us how you see you, sir, Neil. That'll be a start. Thank, listen, thank you so much. And Adrian, thank you. And, you know, good luck. Grimdog Magazine there, striving for excellence. Thank you very much. Living the dream, striving for excellence. Thank you, Adrian. There. So that is Starship Sova. I hope you enjoyed it. Two smallish stories, but, you know, a big thank you to Jeremy for getting them and getting all that sorted out. Again, if you've got some nice ideas for Starship Sova Show 500, I'm getting these little things made, you know, like these little kind of time capsules, what I'm calling them. And the idea is to take off and launch with this very microphone into outer space and then <laughs> record it. But, oh, it's niggly. Now I know the, the headache NASA sign is off. <laughs> Until next week, just like to say, good night from me. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.
be on my way If I can catch myself on a radio wave, I might get to you someday If books were rocket ships, I'd need only the will to fly I'm still building word by word and I'll get out there by and by I'll get out there by and by I'll get out there I'll get out there by and by I'll get out there by and by I'll get out